I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connections, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. Yep, another powerful episode. I know every guest that agrees to be on this show has so much insight to share and beauty and wisdom. My guest for today is Asher Panjuris, and wait till you hear what they have to talk about. In this episode, we talk about Asher, whose podcast is called Living in This Queer Body. And we also talk about what it's like living in a body with chronic illness. All right, I'm not going to say anymore. We're just going to dive right in. Let's do it. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am incredibly honored to introduce you to the guest that we have today, Asher Panjuris. Asher, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. You and I have already been talking before we started recording, and and it's already been a rich dialogue. So, Asher, could you introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Yeah, so I'm Asher Panjuris. I'm a psychotherapist, and I um, also have a podcast, which is an interesting um, tension in my life as a, a private practice psychotherapist and also more public um, person. My podcast is called Living in This Queer Body, and it's a podcast about barriers to embodiment. Um, And I tend to specialize in working with folks who struggle with disordered eating, um, barriers to embodiment and nourishment. um, And I am a queer person. I am a parent. Uh, I'm a dog parent, um, parent of a human too. Um, and I am really glad to be here. I love, I love talking about, um, all of this, all of the messy, all the messy inter interconnected topics that I imagine we'll get into. Yeah. You know, it's interesting and forgive me if I'm making too big of something, but I I love that you say parent of a human, meaning no label, not parent of a son or a daughter or what. I'm parent of a human being, a soul. And that's that's who we all are, right? Yeah. So, Asher, can you share with the listeners 
you and I have talked about the fact that, first of all, you yourself have never experienced uh, an eating disorder or disordered eating. And as I said, not a prerequisite to be a guest on the show. You've worked in the eating disorder community. You know what it's like to feel uncomfortable in your body. Let's start with what got you into treating eating disorders? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really, it's a really good question because, um, I feel very, um, I want to say at home, I guess in, in the certain aspects of the eating disorder field. And in part, I think it's because over the years I've sort of found my own, um, points of connection. So, um, personal points of connection with my patients and, um, so I, um, I think two main parts of my personal life really compelled me to, to work in this field. And one of them is that I was very interested, um, sort of in an intellectual academic sense, um, in the way trauma impacts the body right? And this was many, many years ago. This is before everyone was reading The Body Keeps the Score. This was, you know, and, and I wanted to know more because I, you know, I, I am someone who experienced, um, you know, early childhood trauma and really never understood how, how to connect my personal experiences with the struggles that I was having, um, in my own body and the way that trauma tends to kind of manifest in ways that, um, I needed, I personally needed help making sense of. And so that led me to my very first clinical job, which was, um, working at an eating disorder treatment center that was really focused on, um, it was a residential treatment center. And, and, um, at the time, um, I was lucky enough to, to not only be working in this environment that taught me a lot about eating disorders, but also, um, Dick Schwartz, who is the kind of founder of IFS, Internal Family Systems, was um, doing a lot of his um, clinical research at the facility where I was I was working, and so I got I got a lot of information very quickly about um, both in connecting with the patients and also you know through through IFS learning about. Um, parts work, the way that trauma and dissociation um, kind of play out in the body and how disordered eating is really um, such a like helpful and adaptive and very um, logical kind of coping strategy or defense around um, some deeply unbearable traumatic experiences. And so I think I, I, I really entered into the field with not only a tremendous amount of empathy, but also curiosity and respect, I guess you could say for the function of an eating disorder, which is not to say that I, you know, am, am, um, not attuned to the depth of pain and the danger of, of, you know, severe eating disorders. And I was working in a residential setting. So I, you know, I was working with people who were very sick and I guess it just, 
it felt important. It feels like an important part of my um, life as a clinician that I had the experience of really connecting very early on that, you know, the eating disorder behaviors are problematic, but the function of the, the restriction or the binging or the, you know, is communicating a lot. And I am interested in hearing about what it's communicating. Um, and I have, um, I think there's a lot of coherence to that, um, to those behaviors and as a strategy for dealing with navigating trauma. So that's one aspect of it. And um, I guess the other aspect is that I, I was diagnosed when I was 14 with Crohn's disease, um, which impacts, you know, a lot of, it's an autoimmune disorder and it impacts your body in a lot of different ways. Um, and I have from a very early age, puberty, not the best time to be getting that kind of a diagnosis. Um, been told the what to eat, how to eat, what I can do to heal myself, maybe question mark, you know, like, so I've been exposed to diet culture, the wellness industrial complex for the majority of my life, actually. I've had medical professionals and other, you know, well-meaning, but people telling me how to fix what is happening in my body. Um, and as we said, when we were talking before, I think it is pretty remarkable that I somehow made it through that experience without, um, a really active eating disorder. Um, but I did, and probably that has something to do with, you know, uh, a relative thin privilege that I, I was born into a body that, um, you know, wasn't at, at the very least wasn't pathologized for, um, for my size. And so I, I don't know how things would have gone if, if that weren't the case. And I just, I always want to acknowledge that. Um, I think those two things kind of led me to the field. Um, and then as I've been in the field, I've been very, I guess maybe I've been a somewhat of a critical voice around, um, the way in which, uh, queer trans non-binary folks are excluded from a lot of the discourses, a lot of the research, a lot of the treatment of, um, eating disorders, also people of color as well. Um, and I, as a queer person, as a non-binary person, um, the majority of the people that I work with um, tend to struggle with even kind of identifying with the idea that they have an eating disorder um, because of because of the the sort of limitations in in some of the discourses. I think that's changing a bit, you know. But um, I'm very invested in kind of expanding the discourse around what it means to have an eating disorder and what disordered eating, how disordered eating functions, I guess, for specifically trans and non-binary people in a, in a way to um, help folks manage dysphoria. Um, and so that, that has been very important personally and within my community. Um, 
and that's a lot of what kind of gets addressed um, on my podcast. I I know this is a really big, vague question, but you said what the function is in like what what do you feel in the trans non-binary queer community? What it, you know, when I think about what the function is when I had an eating disorder, I can come up and listeners have heard me say a thousand times what the functions were. So is there something in particular that's getting missed mm-hmm. in the community? Because as you said, there's not a lot of research being done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, of course, there are overlaps and, you know, there are plenty of, you know, trans and non-binary folks who have also experienced, you know, acute traumas or been subjected to diet culture um, in in a way that that is kind of in alignment with a lot of the discourses and a lot of the research around eating disorders. I think what's potentially getting missed, and it it maybe it seems somewhat obvious, but it is the way that um, the way that the gender binary um, is kind of reinforces a, a need within trans and non-binary people to adhere to certain body types in order to be recognized, visible, seen, witnessed as in the ways that they want to be witnessed. So for example, I'll, you know, I can use, you know, any one of my patients, but I think let's say someone who is um, assigned female at birth and kind of ends up with a more anorexic looking picture, you know, maybe is, is mostly restricting is doing, of course, some binging because we know as, as we, none of those, none of those behaviors exist in isolation, um, but is, is very restrictive. And I think that what sometimes gets missed is that if, if, the dysphoria or the discomfort with being in a quote unquote more feminine body with curves and you know right like if if it gets missed that what is being threatened in not restricting in potentially refeeding or in nourishing oneself literally just in nourishing oneself is to re-inhabit a body that is that doesn't feel comfortable it's it, it's, I don't think it's the individual's fault, if you will. I think it has to do with our own cultural notions around the gender binary. But for the individual who's getting treatment, if, if providers aren't sensitive to what is at risk, which means, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, a a total erasure of your gender identity and your you know, how you want to be seen, it makes sense why people are going to resist treatment or, you know, not seek it out or hide it, hide what they're struggling with. Um, I see that all the time, every day, you know, um, and it's, 
I think it's an attempt to hold on to a different form of an idealized body than, you know, non queer, trans, non-binary providers may not recognize um, or witness, if that, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it completely makes sense. Uh, you know, that's a, an even bigger question. And, and again, this goes into we are a culture that's so conditioned that things are supposed to look a certain way and be a certain way. And how do you, and, and again, these are big questions, Asher. How do you help the person who walks into your office with part of the function of the anorexia is to no longer have the feminine body because they were born female, feel that they are male? And now, I mean, how do you separate all those parts? It's one thing to separate when we're talking about, you know, and I guess I'm sort of answering my own question, but, you know, the, people living in the diet industry and, and the cultural norms of the, the thin ideal. But now we're talking about, as you said, the word erasure, is that how you said it was a pretty, for some reason, powerful word, like really erasing somebody's identity. Yeah. How do you work with that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. And I think what's important is first, just a, cons a consideration of the dilemma, like really sharing in the dilemma with you know, your patients, I have a, I'm running a group right now, a psychotherapy group, it's called always coming home. And, um, it's a group that is, it's mostly trans and non-binary folks who, you know, are run are on the spectrum of, of engaging in behaviors or being in somewhat in recovery around disordered eating. But part of what is so powerful about the group is that the group, the community acknowledges and holds the dilemma of living in a world as a trans or non-binary person. Maybe some people are seeking medical intervention, um, you know, gender affirming care. Some people have been told or informed by practitioners that or family members that they shouldn't seek out gender affirming care, but meaning, you know, surgery, hormones, things like that. Some people don't want to either, you know, I mean, that's some, that's a journey for some people too. They don't want, you know, medical intervention, but if those, if those options aren't even possible, then, then what you are leaving someone with is you're leaving someone to their own devices. Right. And they're going, it's, you know, if you, are starving yourself, you are maybe inhabiting a body that you feel more comfortable in, but you also have, don't have a life. I mean, you, you don't have, you know, you don't have the fullness of life that, you know, you're not nourished and, and all the things that go along with not being nourished. But I think that what I try to contribute to the conversation is the fact that part of being nourished is not just about food. It's about being affirmed in your identity. It's about, you know, creating structures in one's life, community, having access to um, a sense of possibilities. Like, you know, maybe I'm gonna have a, you know, a surgery, but I don't want to take hormones. But if I get like some affirmation around that and I find community around that, it might be easier to address the disordered eating. Like I, I, I needed that, 
those behaviors and the overexercise and orthorexia is pretty much generally how I encounter it. It tends to be in that, you know, mostly orthorexia. I, I don't need like the grip kind of loosens a little bit on those behaviors because other things are being affirmed or cared for or tended to. Um, so I think that's critical, you know, really is the community aspect, the affirmation of the complexity of what's happening. Um, it's, it's similar to like telling, you know, it, when I'm thinking back because we were talking about, you know, early, my early career, but I'm thinking t- about some of the patients that I was working with who were, who really wanted to stop engaging in the behaviors, but they were about, they were young, they were about to be sent back into these, into traumatic home situations. And so they're looking at me like a deer in the headlights saying, I don't want to starve myself, but I also don't know how to be in my family without, I mean, of course, family work and, you know, all these things are important, but it's kind of like saying that to someone, like just stop these behaviors, learn to love yourself. When the world around you, you see, you know, like trans women being killed all the time. And, you know, it's not safe. It it isn't safe for some people to inhabit, inhabit those bodies. So I think we have to address, I guess this is like, you know, really zooming out, but we, we really have to address kind of the, the, the systemic issues that are getting in the way of of people being able to um, do the really hard work that is recovery work. Um, I guess I just think it doesn't exist in a, in a vacuum. Um, there's, there's so many things that I want to point out. First of all, um, say it again, the name of your group coming home. Is that always coming home. Always coming home. As you were talking about community, it reminded me of the saying, it takes a village. And that's what I think of about the title, the title of your group, the name of your group. It takes a village of love and support, unconditional love, affirmations, things like that. And just saying, I hear it. Like, I'm not going to try to pretend it's not happening. Yeah, we're all here. And that's what came to my mind. Yeah. Other thing that I thought about where eating disorders do get involved also, and and obviously there's many, many ways of going about things. Gender affirming surgery is not, reassignment surgery is not the only way. My, my question though is, isn't that also dictated by weight? I, I remember I had a guest on the show that talked about um, wanting top surgery but had to be like a certain BMI or something like that. So, so how do you, this is going to sound, I mean, I can't believe I'm even saying this, but how do you not struggle with disordered eating or an eating disorder? If, if you're, if you're trans or non-binary, how, how is it possible? Yeah. I mean, plenty of people, plenty of people do, but in, if you are inhabiting, you know, um, a body that is deemed uh, inappropriate, um, for surgery. You know, one of the, the guests on my show has a very, like a a large Instagram presence and and is a very, is a fat activist and, um, their name is Jay. And they recently posted something that was really 
profound to me. It was, you know, they, they basically came out publicly and said, I, I want this surgery and I don't think I'll ever be able to get it because nobody will, will, you know, work with me. And I don't know, you know, BMI is something that I'm extremely critical of, but I, I understand that there are, you know, I'm, a, I'm not a medical doctor, but I do think fat phobia, you know, is pervasive in, in the medical world, in the trans community. I mean, so I, you know, I don't know. It is, it, there are barriers to entry for sure for a lot of people. And so I think that's where then you have to work with, um, with some advocacy work, I think, and also understand how within community, how to, how we in, in our, you know, queer, trans, non-binary community, how we can try to start, you know, addressing ableism and fat phobia within our community, the way in which, you know, that exists. It's not, it's not, um, just like anywhere else, maybe even stronger, you know, I think some of those there, there's a lot of isolation, I guess, for people who feel like there isn't a quick fix. Um, and that is what gets held out, um, as, you know, by medical professionals, by, you know, wellness industry folks is to anyone and anybody that's in distress is like, here's a fix. Let's, you know, drink, drink the celery juice every day and you will be good. And then you can have the life that you want. Right. And, um, so there's grief, it's grief work. Like, I feel like that's a lot of what I do is, is grief work is sitting with people in, in grief, um, and trying to figure out, you know, ways to manage that. Um, it does help to have community and connection and to feel understood on a deep level. I think that does help with, even with the, the kind of, you know, addressing the underlying behaviors. Um, but it's hard and slow work as you, as you know. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. What prompted you to do the podcast? Is it your passion? Like I do this podcast because I have a passion for healing and i like to get the word out and, yeah. and I like to, to debunk myths if that's the right. So, and, and I love talking to people and having like guests like you on the show. I think, oh my gosh, how did I get so lucky? How did you, what prompted you to start the podcast? Yeah. Um, I think a couple of things. One is that um, I also really love talking to people and I feel like I get the podcast as sort of an excuse for me to have conversations with people that I, that I admire. And, um, and I think part of what I admire about, about folks that I interview is that, you know, as a, as a person who grew up in a very like religious, conservative, kind of limited worldview atmosphere. As a queer person, I, I, I really needed to learn from other people 
what it meant to imagine different possibilities. And so I think, and I think that that is true for a lot of people, whether you're queer or not, you know, to how do you imagine possibilities? How do you imagine embodied possibilities? Like what is, what does it mean to be in a body? How do people navigate that? How do people navigate that if they're chronically ill? How do they navigate it if they, you know, like, what do you do every day? Like what gives you, you know, hope or how do you, have sex or whatever, you know, like, so there, I think that it's sort of what has worked for me, I guess, is witnessing other people hearing their stories has informed how I have, you know, become more comfortable with myself. And so I'm, that's kind of the gift I'm hoping to offer to other people. Um, but I think it, the the specificity of it is that we're talking about dilemmas and and I think it's helpful for um I don't know for for there to be like no one's giving clear answers. They're sort of saying it's hard. It's hard being in a body. There are lots of things that get in the way from feeling like I'm in my body and I and and I think that's a message that people really need to hear um because it's affirming and it helps you feel less alone. Um, and so that's why the focus of the, the podcast is sort of, you know, is, is directed at the complexity of what it means to inhabit a body and to try to nourish it and care for it. Um, let me, let me going off of that switch gears a little bit, talking about living in a body, what is it like living in a body with chronic illness? And, you know, you and I were talking about, you know, some of the quote unquote remedies that are being given to people that are struggling with eating disorders and they're telling them stay away from this food and that food. That's a good food or bad food, big eating disorder. You know, maybe if you lost a little weight, all these things. And also just talking about what it's like walking through the world with chronic illness. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I'm just having a moment where I'm realizing that it's been very hard for me to, until recently, I think the podcast has, has been really helpful for me personally in being able to talk more publicly about um, living with chronic illness. Um, I also struggle with endometriosis. And so I have kind of two autoimmune, um, I have a lot of autoimmune stuff going on in my body, right? Like, so I have a really kind of like, confusing, quote unquote, confusing body where like there, it's hard to figure out what, um, what helps it, why it does things that it does. And, and so what is it? It's, there's a lot of shame, I guess, you know, I mean, partly it's a lot of shame in speaking publicly or openly and about what a struggle it is and how I don't, personally, and I think a lot of people that I work with who also struggle with chronic illness and chronic pain, you know, I think the, the one thing that comes to mind is like, I don't have a consistent, predictable body. So that causes a lot of distress. Um, and that is in part why a lot of these quote unquote remedies don't work because you, um, 
you have good days and you have bad days, or you have hard days, or you have pain, you know, a month of pain, or you have flare-ups and things like that. And so I think that's one of the hardest things to navigate is just being in a body that doesn't feel like it's always very cooperative <laughs> with what you need or what the, you know, social world demands of you, your professional life, your, you know, home life, whatever. Um, and so I'm so glad that I taught, I'm so glad I got over the feelings that I had about it because it's, it's helped me to personally feel more connected. It's also liberated me in the sense that I can speak more openly with my community, my friends, you know, the living this queer body community, my patients about, um, my own vulnerability and I'm, I'm vulnerable. I'm, my body is ever changing. And I think this is where some of the kind of barriers to nourishment, as I call it, you know, like I can really relate to, um, the dilemmas faced by people who are in recovery in various stages of recovery, especially people who are kind of like a couple years in and really trying, but just persistently coming up against some, um, you know, the eating disorder voice or some urges for restriction or just navigating wellness, the wellness industrial complex. I mean, it's impossible to get away from that. And it's impossible, you know, for example, for me on a day or a week when I'm having a rough time with my health to not want to have a quick fix, you know, to not be susceptible to someone saying, well, those are inflammatory foods, you know, right? Like this question of how do I, you know, how do I not be overly controlling about what I'm, what I'm eating or what I'm doing with my body? Um, and I live like in those questions too. You know, I really do live in those questions. I don't, I don't have answers always. And, um, that's, that's hard. Um, it's hard. Well, it also, it, it may, it reminds me, not reminds me, forgive me. That wasn't the correct way of putting it, but it makes me think of what you were just saying is, is wanting a quick fix. I'm assuming you're wanting these quick fixes when you're the most vulnerable, which is when things are acting up in your body and you're like, okay. And so again, when we've got somebody who's in early stages of recovery from an eating disorder and people are saying, eat this food, not that food, which by the way, really goes back into their eating disorder dialogue. And they're going to jump on that because they're vulnerable in two ways. One, vulnerable in the eating disorder recovery and will do anything to feel better. How do you how do you help clients to sort of navigate through that? Because by the way, I I am not a doctor. I, I but I don't think celery juice is going to heal all. Like when you said that earlier, I was like, yeah, it's, I like I could just picture it. You know, it's not. So, but people are desperate. And then people that are in eating disorders also can cling on to that and say, oh, but I'm told I can only eat this. Like it's very, very complicated, Asher. What What are your thoughts about it? Yeah, it's so messy. And yeah, we could probably talk about this for the next 10 years, but 
one of the words that I like to use for myself um, and with my patients is like finding more ease in not only in your body, but kind of um, mentally and emotionally. And by that ease doesn't mean it's easy or it's um, like everything's fixed, but it does mean that um, like, I think I'm, as someone who lives with a chronic, chronic illnesses, I, I'm very tuned into the stories we tell ourselves when we're suffering, when we're vulnerable, when we're hurting, when we're, you know, and if you are piling it on, right. If you're saying I'm suffering and I also am not doing a good enough job, this is my fault. I'm not doing a good enough job at, um, you know, cutting out X, Y, and Z foods as if food is the problem. I, it never is the problem to me. It's just, unless you have a diagnosable, you know, like you have celiac disease, it's been diagnosed period, you know, pretty much unless that is the case. I mean, I'm not, I, I shouldn't speak for everyone, but you know, unless that's the case, like food is not going to make my Crohn's disease go away. It, it's just not. And, and so when I talk about ease or accessing ease, I think sometimes it means that you feel more calm and usually you have to be nourished to feel more calm or to feel less anxious. So maybe it's just a matter of like feeling less anxious about what's happening in your body, right? And feeling less anxious about the pain that you're feeling or feeling less overwhelmed by what this means for your future, right? But so that's where we kind of, I, there's, you know, I kind of take like a more mindfulness approach, like one day at a time, you know, what works, what's the best thing best decision for me today that might bring some ease to my body? Have I had my meals and my snacks today? Have I had enough rest? Um, and the mental anguish needs to be addressed too. Like someone need, you need help with that, you know? And so I think it's hard to, I guess I, I'm not exactly answering your question, but I, I suppose that the the antidote to the quick fix is, um, something much less enticing. Um, but it's also what I've, what I can speak from personal experience about, you know, like, and I think that comes across with the people I work with that, that I have found more ease in my body by accepting its limitations, accepting that I shouldn't spend the rest of my life trying to make it perfect. Um, and does that mean I never get frustrated? Absolutely not. I mean, I do all the time, but I, I think that that kind of easefulness is something that, um, can be achieved even when you're in some, in your, in chronic pain or in, in recovery. Um, well, it, when you said it's to go to, and, and I'm paraphrasing, but you were using the term ease and then you said, it's not easy, but to have, e it reminds me also when you were saying accepting acceptance does not mean that you're like, you know what? I accept it. Crohn's disease. 
Okay, now what? It's an I accept there's limitations and I'm not going to create, I'm not going to go similar to if my body were a certain size, my life would be better. If I have celery juice, that's not going to ease my, my Crohn's disease. It's a level of acceptance. I accept that I'm sad that I have it. I accept that I'm frustrated. And by the way, the more you drop into that, and please don't think I'm, I'm speaking from experience, I'm imagining some of the less you feel symptoms because our bodies, anxiety and stress wreak havoc on our immune system, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and all of this easier said than done, right? Easier said than done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, it kind of speaks to one of the critiques, you know, around the body positivity sort of movement, which is wonderful. And I don't mean to be critical of that as a, as a concept, but I think what it often gets overly distilled into, I love my body all the time, no matter what's happening with it. And I think that, you know, sometimes it's hard to show up in the world that we live in, in a trans body, in a larger body in a chronically ill body in a disabled body, you know, that's hard. And so you don't have to like, I think there's a way to embrace aspects of it. I think there's also ways to be very critical of the, you know, ableism and fat phobia that exists and are pretty much normalized in our, you know, in diet culture and this wellness culture. But yeah, you don't have to be positive about it necessarily. You can be, try to find some ease within it, but yeah. So yes, I agree with your point. Yeah. Well, well, I also think, and I, and I've said this before and, and I mean no disrespect either, but saying to clients, let's try to help you with body positivity. I feel like sort of sets them up thinking, well, first of all, then that's my goal for recovery. And it's not. Um, And also, until I get there, I'm not recovered. And by the way, most clients that are sitting in my office loathe their body. So I just want to say, can I get you to stop hurting your body? Let's start there. Let's stop hating your body and hurting itself. Let's just start there because body positivity is in a whole different realm. And I feel like it sort of sets people up. And again, I mean no disrespect to any philosophy out there, but it's especially like you, somebody who's in pain, somebody who has gender dysphoria, for us to be like, we're going to get you to really love your body. It just doesn't line up. Yeah, I think it requires, I mean, the work that you and I do and others do, ultimately, I think it does require us to sit in in the messiness of of what it means to be in a body. And sometimes the, the body that you're in is in pain um, and it's in pain. It's been in pain for a long time. So um, I agree to setting up unrealistic expectations. I think the same is true of intuitive eating, like how quickly the idea of intuitive eating is, is, um, you know, I have people who like are two months into their just acknowledging that they have an eating disorder and they're like, 
why am I not eating intuitively? You know, and it's, it's, you know, I just, and again, it's not, it's not about the the concept. It's just that um, I think we're, even within our field, there's a, a desire to kind of get someone to Quick an fix. easier place. Yeah. An easier place. Right. And you want to do that because there's so much suffering. And yet like there is, I think there is a lot of power in the grief work um, that kind of has to proceed, um, proceed some of the, like, I don't know, fixing. Um, yeah. Well, again, it goes into the eating disorder mentality. If I can do this, this will be better. If I if I do this behavior, then I won't feel this pain. So it's the same thing. So we're just sort of saying, can you replace one eating disorder thought with another one and just go to this unrealistic expectation where life is gradual, healing is gradual, healing is back and forth healing sometimes we stop and just stay where we're at for a little while and so it's it's a process that's why we say recovery is a process right yeah you know asher i'm i'm aware that we're we're getting kind of close to the end which makes me super sad especially because as you said we we could talk for years about some of these topics but before we end, is is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share? Anything you wanted to say before I before I ask your final question? I don't think so. I think we I think we hit on a lot of my hot topics that yeah. I tend to care a lot about. Yeah, we covered a lot of ground. We did. Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, Asher, before I ask your last question, I just really want to thank you. I'm I'm really honored to have had you on the show today. So thank you for being part of it. For asking me. I, I appreciate it. My pleasure. So I do have to ask you another question, though, which is, Asher, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Ooh. Oh, um, maybe Asher cares about me. Love that. <laughs> I care a lot. That's really, really beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. 
All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.